Okay, um, so my project's about colorblind racism within the Democratic Party, and so I'm talking to organizations to get them to tell me like what their experience is like, you know, interacting with the Democratic Party, and it can be both parties as a whole, and trying to get their um, policies across um, within Knoxville, and right. even talking about if you've had interactions with even people on a more of a national level right. and what you think about the National uh, Democratic Party. Right. And so how I'm defining colorblind racism is pretty like broad, you know, not overt racism, but the kind of sentiment of like, oh, I'm not prejudiced, but, uh -huh. and they proceed to say something pretty presidential. Right, right. And so I wanted to get your impact on first just talking about how is your organization engaged in politics? Like, do you endorse candidates? Um, or do you encourage people to um, vote for certain people or donate? Like, how do you, does your organization go about it? So first off, Black Coffee Justice is a 501c4 social justice organization. Mm -hmm. So that makes us a political justice, social justice organization by the mm -hmm. identification of our tax bracket, our tax identifier. Um, and we have been involved in, let's say, we just probably finished out our third or fourth election season. Um, and we do endorse candidates and we do do education at the polls. We do a lot of work in the political race. Now, as far as the party goes, uh, I'll be honest, for dear black people, always, us and Democrats or Republicans, it doesn't matter, these parties were white founded. Therefore, mm -hmm. their interests and their protections and their agendas are always in advantage of the white people. Yeah. They patronize the black vote because unfortunately you cannot win an election without our vote at the same time. Yeah. So. Normally, black people get a lot of empty, false promises or the bare minimum of, mm -hmm. of, 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 uh, of the uh, candidate's platforms to support our needs. That is why I feel like with this particular election cycle, we got to see the ugly truth of even the Democratic Party. You know, a lot yeah. of black people are very loyal to the Democratic Party because once upon a time, uh, when you look at your um, presidents like, uh, what's his name, that brought the New Deal in, and you know the the, the introduction of, of the, the government welfare system uh, mm -hmm. then introduced under Roosevelt. That's what it was. Roosevelt introduced some type of form of the uh, welfare system, and it was heavily advantaging to the black people, obviously, because it was targeting towards poor people. Which we already know in this country, black people make up some of the highest numbers of poverty rates across yeah. the country, literally. So, you know, it brought a lot of loyalty from black people to the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, but even then, if you go look at the history about even the Republican Party, actually before we were Democrats, we were heavily Republican Party because yeah. they were part of the post era of slavery and they always have stood on their platform of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, opportunities available. Yeah. Um, and when post slavery happens, the Republican Party was the one offering black people those opportunities out like, okay, you don't want to be a sharecropper? We can teach you how to be a carpenter or train you to be a plumber or offer yeah. you educational accessibility. Um, but we had a party switch, like I said, along the history of the Republican and Democrat. But again, this has all been divisive by both parties to pull our loyalty because they need our votes. That's why I'm very adamant about creating our own party. Um, yeah. And that's because one of the examples that 
sticks out to me about how the Democratic Party was disloyal is the Kentucky race with Mitch McConnell and Amy uh, McGarth and McGrath, yeah. And how they gave $80 million to Amy's campaign to push Booker literally out of that election and to only turn around and let Mitch McConnell win the election, period. So it's like, Democrat Party, what was y'all doing? <laughs> you took a candidate that had a real shot at beating that man out of yeah. it because your racism is what got in the way of that. That's racism right there. For whatever reason, you didn't want that black man to win that seat. And so you turned around and try to put a white candidate over him who didn't have a shot in hell at that point in that race. And we watched what happened. Mr. Connell blew her out the water and kept it pushing. Yeah. So we see how racism falls into the Democratic politics when they don't want us to win the seat. Vice versa, as you saw here in Tennessee with Marquita Bradshaw's election. You know, let's just be honest. The Democratic Party only endorsed Marquita Bradshaw because she's the one that won out. Had yeah. a white man won out, they probably would have went and endorsed that white man over her. But unfortunately, the, well, unfortunately, fortunately, no white person beat her out, and they had to basically, I feel like, kind of was forced into an endorsement of her. Yeah. Um, but even with her campaign, the way some things were ran, some of the things that were done, it was once again, you could see a black candidate being forced to be loyal to a white political party and their agendas and their wants. Um, shout out to Marquita on making a true effort in trying yeah. to get into rural areas, trying to reach those grassroots spaces, trying to really get to the working class Americans that were in the state of Tennessee to let them know that she platforms on that spaces of the working American, the fights that we face in our daily livelihoods of surviving this oppressive system that is designed upon us. Uh, but however, if the Democratic Party, in my opinion, would have done their part to help her, she probably would have had a bigger impact and maybe had a better shot at the Senate race, where unfortunately she got blew out of her race too because the same yeah. thing happened again. Democratic Party put the effort or the money into her campaign, the Republican Party endorsed and funded their candidate, and he killed her in this election once again. So to me, if you talk about Democrat, or as I ask black people and poor people, working Americans, I always ask them all the time, what's the difference between a Republican and a Democrat? Well, the answer is nothing, because you know why? Because when they have to pass a policy, the majority must vote to pass that policy. Mm -hmm. So as we see right now, for example, in our house, it's predominantly Democrat again. Yeah. And, but uh, what, four years ago, it was predominantly Republican. Yeah. But the catch is, it still took the majority to pass something. So you know what that means? Democrats are voting in advantage of Republicans, and Republicans are voting in advantage of the Democrats. So at the end of the day, there is zero difference between the two. And like I said before, these are still white-founded parties, and their interests and priorities are always going to be for the white people. So to me, if you're going to talk about this, then we're going to have to talk about the reality of the development of a people party, and it's particularly the development of the black people party on top of that. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently um, who's more focused about, is on like the criminal justice system, mm -hmm. but of course, impact on large. And she said that often she's told by people and even if people are not connected to the party, that she needs to focus on um, the numbers and what it's gonna save people instead of like, she was told not to even bring up black people, like hmm. really while talking about these issues. Really? So has anyone ever told you that? Like as like advice to like get what you want? I definitely think that white candidates particularly and even black candidates really struggle with saying black. They struggle with that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that my organization does is we have a black agenda. Uh, we were developing this agenda with Matthew Park, who ran for the 15th district state senate seat. I'm sorry, state representative seat uh, in our, which is the 15th district. 
Um, but through that, Matthew is a gay white male, a young gay white wealthy male at that. But he is aware that as a gay person, the type of oppression he experiences because of his mm-hmm. sexuality. Um, but he's even more conscious to realize that he's only getting a small dosage of what it's like to be a black person that's gay and yeah. having that type of oppression on too. Um, and so Matthew brought an adamant thing to the table. was like, you know, I really want to sit down with black leaders locally and across the state and mm-hmm. talk about their needs and what they need to have done or have met uh, as we look at our state legislator and the powers that the state holds in making policies and laws um, and developing what we later stamped and, da- and dimed up and today stands as the black agenda. Um, and it's on the Black Coffee Justice website, which is blackcoffeejust.com. You go on our website, you click agenda, and the black agenda fully comes up. And it was developed by black leaders both locally and across the state. Um, and to me, it was the most empowering moment ever as a voter and as an organization, really as a black person in America, because I realized we're going to have to require candidates to start talking about this. Like, you're yeah. not going to just get my vote and then don't have nothing for me. No, that's not going to work. Enough. You're going to have to out loud say black agenda or black people this is what we're going to do in some of your areas of struggle um and so that was one of the things that all the candidates that was endorsed by me this year had to do you had to endorse the black agenda like you weren't willing to endorse the black agenda then you wouldn't endorse by me at that point yeah um and then you know i also talked to several of my candidates that i did endorse about the reality of being able to say black and i thought it was beautiful that many of the candidates were willing to admit that, that yes it is true we have been dodging tough issues, especially the black issues, because we're afraid to say the word black. Yeah. Um, and it was disturbing even to a certain extent, which was ironic, was that how the white candidates were open to start using that vocabulary, really starting to speak in the language of black people, black needs, black concerns, black issues. But mm-hmm. then the black candidates were quick to shun away from it and didn't even want to say it. They were still using all lives matters and things of that nature. And I'm like, but you're a black person. How can you use that type of vocabulary? And you are a black person yeah so i didn't understand that and i was like you know this is how politics is designed though design design of politics is to be as neutral as possible on the tough issues don't say yeah. the word gay don't say the word black don't say the word homeless or oppressed don't say the word uh poor women or elderly disabled you don't say that like it, it's like we don't want to use we don't want to talk about the tough issues um until we're in a room full of these people, and then I'll say you want to say those things. But then when you walk out that room, I'll say you can't even use that vocabulary no more because yeah. you're afraid of what this rich person over here may think about that and then how they may feel about it. And then you feel like, oh, I'm going to lose funding, I'm going to lose some votes and other things behind it, so I don't want to say that. And there was candidates like that. I'm not going to say any names, but one mm-hmm. candidate does pop in mind particularly because I told this one candidate, I said, you know, I said, it'll be a crime shame that you form yourself and bend yourself over backwards to shape yourself to a certain appeal of voters and you're selling yourself short the entire time because you've not been true to self. I said, then you turn around and you do all that work to be what they want you to look like, and you still lose this race. I said, to me, it makes more sense to run true to yourself, be true to your platform and who you are, and let the voters decide, do I want someone who's honest, real, and upfront about who they are, what they stand for and support, and that's what my vote is based upon? Or do I want to be this candidate that I tried to put this mask on and appeal to the voters that I was trying to target to vote for me and only yeah. have them still see past the mask and realize, well, that ain't who you really are, and I'm still not going to vote for you because now you're not being honest to me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a crime shame that we watch candidates do that, and like I said, in the end, you still lose. I feel like I can lose a race with a lot more integrity and, I- and honor if I'm true to me than to try to please somebody I'm not and then turn around and still lose. That would be devastating to me because it's like, damn. I pretend to be something I want, and y'all still didn't vote for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you better off just being yourself. Um, so, yeah. 
I think it's I think it's, it's 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 mandatory now. I think as we move forward, as we continue to push the movement through the chains and ranks of our politics on the federal, state, and local level, that at this point, if you're running for office, black or white, you're going to have to be able to say a black agenda. You're going to have to be able to say black, and you're definitely going to have to be able to say black in front of the people and outside of the room with the people to your majority of your uh, voters or your supporter base so that they can understand that this is something you really do stand for, really do support, and therefore, if you are not voting for me because I support that, then guess what? I never wanted your vote in the first damn place anyways because we have to talk about really changing things now. And if mm -hmm. you are not in the agenda, in my opinion, of change, and like I said, that includes being able to say and talk about the difficult topic that we try to be nice about with each other, then to me, why are you running? Because yeah. this country is not going to make it with people sugarcoating. We're going to have to get real honest and really real about what is happening in our communities and in our country. Yeah, I, so recently I've been seeing more on like Twitter and like even in my classes, people, we've now been talking about, you know, the calls for defunding the police. Mm -hmm. And of course what comes up is like, well, is that the term they really should have used? Mm -hmm. Or um, maybe that's not the right way to, to go about it, to convince people. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you say to that? And like, what is your perspective on like calls for defunding the police uh -huh. and like the way to go about it? Because now I feel like it's, we're going back to like, okay, what will make people most comfortable? Right. And that scares me because like people have been comfortable right. and that's kind of the problem. Right. It's like, what right. do you think people have been doing before not reforming the police? Like, that's, right. that's been the right. cause. So what do you think about that? Well, I'm all in support of defunding the police. And even though people say, well, that's not the right, right terminology, well, to a certain extent it is. <laughs> you know, for example, right here locally in Knoxville, we gave our police department $60 million. Mm -hmm. But we gave our social services and, and resource accessibility like $3 million. That's the problem right there. Why do you have a $60 million police dollar budget, but then you turn around when it's for your public health, your public transportation, your public education, you're only investing $3 million in that space. But then on the counter side, you want to complain about your crime rate. Well, this is data now. See, this is where I love the data number. The numbers start to come in. See, my favorite show ESPN is called Numbers Don't Lie, and I love it because it's right. Numbers don't lie. And so data has shown us mm -hmm. that in cities, countries, states, communities, etc., where the money was invested into the public resources that what we just named the education the health care the transportation the accessibility the disabled elderly needs etc they had lower crime rates mm -hmm. and they had more success and lower poverty rates on top of that versus other cities in other countries and other states and other models where they invested heavily in their police forces and less into their social services they have higher crime rates and higher poverty rates. So what's the analogy that we're drawing here now? We're starting to draw poverty as the key core now, right? So the root yeah. is poverty. And what we have found is that for people who choose to address poverty through helping people, like let's pull people up, let's help people become better people, let's put them in a position to win and do better, find that they have more success in their communities and the thrive and livability of their communities because they are taking care of their people. Vice versa, communities who want to take poverty and use it as a criminalization factor, meaning we're going to send police in there and criminalize the poverty problems because we don't want to put the social service money in or we don't want to support the grassroots nonprofits who are trying to address it. We'd rather just say, okay, it's just a crime to be poor and we'll just arrest you and fill up our jail cells and use federal dollars and other funding we get for doing that instead. 
Well, the counter to that is that when you don't uh, fund into your social organizations and social businesses and social services, you have this influx of crime, like murder, like for not we had an out of control murder rate this summer. Um, and you have your poverty rate, which has continued to skyrocket. We were at 42% prior to the pandemic. I can't wait to see what the state numbers come out post-pandemic of what our poverty rate is too. And I have a feeling it's well over 50% now. Yeah. I'm willing to bet we are well over 50%. But at the same time, what did our city government officials do? They gave $60 million to our police forces. So again, you are still not even being conscious as a government about what's happening in your city and your communities to realize maybe we shouldn't give them 60 million. Maybe we should give them only 30 million. Let's put 30 million over to help people now. But again, we are seeing these models unfold. There's data and statistics out there already support either or model to show which one is better or worse. And I mean, a little fact for the people that are all pro police, here's a little kicker for you. FBI has some data too. FBI has shown that a crime is 98% not likely to be stopped by police. So they yeah. don't even stop crime. On top of that, the second number is that police have been shown 98% likely to not even prevent crime from happening. So they don't even stop crime and they don't prevent crime at either. And either. And they have a success ratio. They have a, a the likelihood of them solving of not solving a crime is like in the 85 percentile. So they don't solve crime. They don't prevent crime. They don't stop crime. All they do is show up once the crime happened and call themselves trying to make an arrest to who they think is responsible for the action. So the data shows that even in that statistics of the police effectiveness, it's terrible. So if I'm a Nike owner and I'm making Nike shoes and I have a shoe that I'm putting out on my line and let's say it's Eric Jordan and <laughs> Bo Jackson. Eric Jordan is making 98% of my sales. Bo Jackson only kicking me 10%. Now, as the owner of this company, what would we say? Stop making Bo Jackson because he ain't making you no money. You might want to heavily invest in Jordan, though, because he is making you some money. So it's the same thing. Dear governments, why are you investing in police departments who have a poor success ratio where you could probably have greater success in your social services if you gave it a kicker or a try versus continuing a model that doesn't work? You know what they say insanity is, right? Trying the same thing over and over again and getting the exact same result. So we are practicing a form of insanity when we talk about our police departments. And so to me, it's like, why not try the model of defunding them or cutting their budgets down or reducing them drastically and investing into people resources instead? And let's just see what happens. Because the model <laughs> we're currently on has not worked for almost 600 years at this point. Yeah. Um. So yes, I definitely support defund the police. <laughs> but like I said, defunding the police is not let's defund them and get rid of them. It's no cut the budgets almost to pretty much in half and put it into social services and let's see what the results are from there. Mm -hmm. It's basically stop investing in policing and invest in people is what the concept of defund the police really is. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk about have you ever swiftly ever encountered colorblind racism while trying to advocate for your organization? I think so. I mean, people that yell at they don't see color to me is so disrespectful. Uh, just because you're taking away the struggles and the success and failures and victories of the colored people who have fought in this country. When you say you don't see color, then you're discrediting Martin Luther King and his work. When you say you don't see color, then you're discrediting Marcus Garvey and his work. When you say you don't see color, you're discrediting Ida B. Wells, uh, Sojourner True, Harriet Tubman, and many, many others when you say that. So when people yell out, I don't see color, to me, you automatically are basically identifying yourself as racist at the same time. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
Um, and it's, it's what I tell white people all the time. See, white people gotta understand something. Racism is not just you calling me a nigger or purposely giving a white person a job over me. Racism is indoctrinating. You mm -hmm. have an entitlement from the moment you come out the womb into this world. And as soon as you start to exercise that, which starts in your early childhood education and childcare, because we go to daycares and things like that, um, that is when indoctrinated racism starts to take effect. So to me, if we're gonna talk about colorblind racism, then it's gonna really be talking about indoctrinated racism that mm -hmm. people automatically have because the system was designed for your win. It wasn't designed for my win, it wasn't designed for your win, it was designed for white men, slave owners who created our entire governmental system and people that look like them. So, yes, I have definitely constantly and continuously experienced colorblind racism. Uh, and the other one is other oppressed groups trying to overshadow our oppression. I I'm sure you might have experienced that. Like, yeah. uh, I, I recall a while back on one of my social media posts, um, where we were having the reparation conversation. You know, the reparation conversation is kind of a big topic right now in the country yeah. too. And uh, at that time, there was some Native American, Indian Native American uh, followers I had who came on there and was talking about basically their lack of, of need. Like, oh, we're not getting this in a third. And there was many outlash, backlash from the black community though to those Native Americans. They were like, wait a minute. Y'all done got more than we done got. Y'all got free education. Y'all got free land. Y'all get to have casinos with tax free on it. Like, you know, it was just a list of things they got. You know what I'm saying? And so that's also something that has to stop. You got to stop macro and micro our movement too. Yeah, you're oppressed mm -hmm. and I'm not taking that away from you. But let's just be honest. When the women movement happened, it was for women, but somehow black women got ex excluded. When yeah. we had the gay movement take place, it was for gay people, but somehow the gay black people got excluded. When we had any type of movement that we supported fellow oppressed communities on, it's yeah. when the goods start coming down and the and the laws and things to start to bend for the advantage of those that are following this particular category demographic. Black people always found the way to be excluded from the table. And so this time around, it is about the black people. And that's just it. That's just it. If you're oppressed, then you need to join on board with us. Because I keep telling you, all the oppressed nations, what you have to understand, we were the design of oppression of the system. Like slavery was built off of us. They designed this system of oppression from our oppression. And then they just applied to whoever they want to. Oh, we don't like women, so we're gonna oppress them the same way we did the black people. Oh, we don't like gay people. Well, we're oppressing with the same agenda we use the black people. It's effective. It's a really effective system. Yeah. Give them credit. It's a really <laughs> damn good system. They really did perfect the oppressive system. But just like the foundation of a building, if you want to destroy the building, you're not gonna go blow up the top of the building. Where are you gonna blow it up? At the bottom, because you want to destroy the building. So you blow the foundation up. And so mm -hmm. that's why it's critical for fellow oppressed nations to understand that if you want to really destroy this oppressive system, then you have to join the black movement. Because when we win, everybody's gonna win. It's automatic. It's like the chains are cut from every single oppressive person at the exact same time we become unoppressed too. Um, and so yes, colorblind racism is real, but I think it's tied to one, white indoctrinated racism, and two, fellow oppressed nations not understanding that this is not your movement. Your oppression is not the priority here. The oppression this round is about the black people and the oppression we have faced for 600 plus years. Yeah. Um. Um, so I was looking at polling about it um, because my teacher advised me because white Democrats are seen to be more progressive on race than compared to 
the other like white population, which is like Republicans, independents, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, they see like racial discrimination as being a major barrier. Um, they realize the criminal justice system has been treated uh, black people unfairly. Mm -hmm. And I even saw like, I was watching before I came here, like a documentary about Khalif Browder, right? And so yeah. many white people yeah. are like, what happened to him can't happen again, right. but we see it it's has. It's still happening, yeah. And <laughs> it's still happening. And they're against reparations and looking at race when hiring, like all these other things that possibly could help mm -hmm. the economic fortunes of black people. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about that? And why do you think still, especially white Democrats, I mean, we've lost white Republicans long ago, but mm -hmm. like white Democrats, <laughs> um, why they, you know, are still not understanding the connection that some of these economic things and uh, like especially with criminal justice some play into and that they still benefit from you know well the key part is white they don't understand because they're yeah. white <laughs> that's it like i said it don't matter if they put a d or r in front of it the key factor is white yeah and so you're asking once again white people to understand a black experience that in all honesty they just can't do they can't do it you know when i was growing up my mother used to tell me all the time that you find you the poorest black man and the poorest white man, and that white man still got it better than the poorest black man. Because yeah. again, the system is designed for him to win. He can be rock, dirt, bottom, and the government or the, the people in the system will pull him out before they pull me and you out, literally. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like that's what Trump kind of did. Like, you know, if you want to talk about Trump's success, Trump's success was he was able to tap into poor white America and for whatever reason was able to make them feel like they're better than everybody else. Like, yeah. you know, if you don't get out here and vote for me, then it's going to be the black man or the Mexican or one of them other foreigners taking your job. Well, what happened? White people ran to the polls and voted for him. Black, like I said, Republican or Democrat, they ran and voted for him because he fed into white fear. Yeah. Something that has been used for centuries now on the white American and really the American and really the global government, period, uses fear to control our people. It is a reality. COVID is an example of fear-based type of things going on. Not saying COVID's not real, but there's been a lot of fear-based propaganda around here. You better put on your mask or you're gonna die. Oh, better stay in quarantine or you'll die. You know, like you're really delivering this message and it's almost like the pastor in the church when he says everything you do, you're going to hell for it. You're delivering mm -hmm. fear-based messaging. And so when you're able to tap into white fear and make mm -hmm. them feel like if they support reparations, then somehow they're gonna lose. If they support uh, reforming the criminal justice system, somehow they're going to lose. And see, this is, again, all tied into privilege at the same time. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's why I said that we need to stop using the word equality and we want equity. It's a difference. Yeah. Equality says that I'm six feet and you're five feet and this person is three feet, but everybody's going to get a six-foot ladder. Now, <laughs> is that actually equitable? No. Is it equal? Yes. Equity says... Nope, this is how this works. I'm six feet, you're five feet, you're three feet. I'm gonna get a one foot ladder to help me see over the seven foot wall. You're gonna get a two foot ladder to help you see over the uh, seven foot wall. And the four foot person, you're gonna get a three feet ladder to help you see over the seven foot wall. Now what we have is equity and equality. Cause how? Everybody got a ladder, but everybody got the ladder that they needed so they could see mm -hmm. over the wall. So that is the part I think white people don't understand. What we are saying is not we want to take everything you got or give us your privilege. What we're saying is that we want the same privilege. We want the same privilege. So let us get some of that too. Share that privilege with us too. Or be willing to let go of some of the privilege so that others can have access to the privilege. So you have white people, like I said, getting fear-based messaging of that if they support 
these particular agendas that are going to heavily support the minority black and POC uh, demographic that somehow they're going to lose everything that they got now. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just not true. But again, it is designed to maintain superiority of power. White men are losing their grip on power every single day. If you haven't noticed that, I feel like lately over the last 10 years of the world, it's been a daily pull at their power and it's slowly just losing its grip gradually and forcefully as we keep moving forward. And to me, that is what Trump has done well. To a certain extent, Biden has done some of it himself, like saying things like, you ain't black if you don't vote for me. Biden, who are you to decide that? You are a white man. You have no say so to what we do as black people whatsoever. But again, that's a privilege that you have as a white man in America. You get to say stuff like that because your privilege lets you do that. And because unfortunately black people are in our position because we're afraid of losing our token and our crumbs, that we don't say nothing and check you back to your position. Like, you're a white man, stay in your lane, let us address our big black people about the voting. You do your job, which is you're supposed to have some type of agenda for us. We ain't got that going on. We got black people sitting there letting white people talk crazy and do whatever, getting on cameras, on mics, just talking real reckless. And then they want to go to the back and be like, but well, I ain't talking about you, Bill. You're not one of those niggers. <laughs> like, that's what's happening. And so we have to, as black and white people, look at this from a real perspective. White people, stop being so scared of sharing the privilege. No one's taking your privilege. You will continue to live your life just as good, just that now everybody will be able to live their life just as good. And black people and fellow POC and other oppressed nations, your job is when you see, hear, or confronted with racism is to check that shit right back to where it belongs. Let white people know it is not tolerated, it's not accepted, and if anything, you continue to practice it. We're going to have to either end the relationship or B, it may leave you getting your ass with depending on how disrespectful you're about to be with your racism at this point. Yeah. Um, man, you said something that I wanted to respond on um i hope i'm making you a good interview i hope so <laughs> no it's really good <laughs> no worries um man why do i blank like this um let's see i talked about white privilege i talked about the silent black people that watched the racism white privilege happen yes it's something along there um I talked about Donald Trump and how he mastered using white fear propaganda to push his elections both times. Like I said, previously and now he did the same thing. Uh, I talked about how he was able to tap into the poor white people and make oh. them feel upper class to the poor black people around. I got them. it now. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So you talked about like with the Joe Biden comment and people like accepting it. What do you think about, and we talked about this in my class recently, how the Democrat Party places black people like in higher positions, right? Mm -hmm. To, I mean, they've had a black president right on the top of their ticket, not mm -hmm. VP, and like mm -hmm. potentially more people in the House and the Senate, higher levels. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking, I don't know if you th what you think about this, like that I feel like that's almost a form of like colorblind racism, that they're trying to put these people mm -hmm. on like the top to say like we've solved something or no, even proof that we're not racist. Yeah, right. we're not racist. We're progressive. We support the black people. Yeah. yeah. And so what do you think should be, I don't know, the effort not to like, of course, push those people out, but to make them more like actually adhering to the black agenda, right? Cause mm -hmm. great that you're there and you're black, mm -hmm. but right. I need you to actually Dude, help me. Part, right, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And well, that comes to what I had talked about before, which was called the tokenized black person. Yeah. Um, and you know, unfortunately right now, like you said, in our era of history and fighting for change, it is one of the uh, issues that the black community has. It's also known as the elder guard. You ever heard of the elder guard before? I haven't. Okay, so I'm gonna break down tokenized and the elder guard. So there's the tokenized person first. 
-hmm. tokenized person is someone who is hand selected by white people in power and it could be political it could be in companies etc but it's chosen by white people in power and the reason why they handpick their black person is a couple reasons. Like you said, one, yes, it is to appeal to the black population as though they care about the issues of black people and they support black growth, black progressive, black power. You know what I'm saying? So they put a black person into a position of power. Um, we have several examples here. I'm going to use Charles Lomax, like in India Kincannon's uh, government, uh, mayor mm -hmm. cabinet here. Excellent example. He was handpicked by her, just like hers was handpicked by the Democratic Party for the VP. So that's what they're selling. Oh, black people, we do care about you. We're going to pick one of your own, and we're going to put him in a high position, and we're going to pay him well, and anybody can be vice president. Anybody can be president. Anybody can be in the mayor's cabinet. That's that's that sell. The second part of the tokenized black person's job, though, is to sugarcoat and sell the white agenda to the black people. So we see that, right, with Harris, and when Harris had her head up debate with Pence, you know, there was a lot of things that Pence threw out there about Biden and his past and things he had said and done, and we saw Harris clean it up for him, basically. Like, oh, no, he didn't mean it like that. What he actually meant was blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and we watched Charles Lomax do the same thing for India. You know, one of the biggest things that kind of came on a backlash on Charles Lomax was the Morningside Park project that's now going to be the boys, uh, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Park is what it's about to be turned into. Mm -hmm. But even then, Charles Lomax was aware of this happening, yet he did not say anything to his public. Why? Because his loyalty is to India. Same thing with hers. She know Joe Biden been caught saying racist stuff, but again, why did she clean it up? Because her loyalty is to him and the party. So, yeah. that's the second part of the token black person's job. I almost said token nigga, because that's what I call him. <laughs> Edit that out. But, and the third job of the token black person is to do just that. It is to protect the white infrastructure that is now paying them to be their dirty man. Dirty man, cleanup man. It's kind of like a dual role. Your job is to make me look good, sell it to the black people, help them get on board to the projects that we're trying to do, even though it's going to destroy and ruin their lives and their communities. They don't need to know that. Your job is just to make it sound and look good so they'll go over and check that box and do what we say to do or what we ask them to do so we can push forward our own agendas at this point. So from those three positions, you have what creates the elder guard. Now, the underguard is the old dog in the game. They done been done this. They done screwed their people left and right over and over again. But for whatever reason, we keep voting them back into office. We got one right now. Sam McKenzie is a elder guard. Um, his wife, Gwen McKenzie, is a elder guard. And their role is to continue to protect the white power structure that has hand-selectedly tokenized them for exchange of payment and crumbs. See, that's what aggravates me about the elder guard black people is that you don't understand how you are getting played in the picture. They giving you crumbs to sell your people short. So for example, if I'm the white man in power and I pick you to now be my vice president of my company, let's say we're making $10 billion a year, but I'm only paying you a million a year. I just gave you crumbs. I'm taking home $99 billion and I gave you $1 million just to sell your people short. Now the irony is that you're gonna continue to sell your people short, you know why? Because you're making more money than everybody else. Your million dollars is still a lot of money when you go look in your own community, but yeah. if you come over here in my side of the fence, you ain't squat over here. Matter of fact, get out of the room. You don't have enough money to even be in this room right now. Matter of fact, I pay you. Get your ass up out of this room. And so that's what the elder guard does. They purposely harm their community for crumb payments from the white power structure because that's their role to protect the white power structure not protect their people protect the white power structure that is why they hand select 
food they want in there. Cause see, they don't pick people like me to be in there because they know I'm going to ruin the entire set. I'm going to blow everything apart. So they don't need people like me in there. They need someone that's going to be a yes man, yes sir, no sir type guy and do what they say and sell the agenda to the people so they can get what they want from the people side of it. And at the same time, they kicking you little crumbs for your duty work for them. It's a problem. We have to remove the black people that are blocking us from success too. I agree. They have to go. Um, and it's one of the things that I think that if you look in history with MLK and Mark, I'm sorry, sorry, MLK and Malcolm X and Mandela, some of those late last round of our leaders, uh, black leadership, when we really had a, a real solid ground of black leadership representation at that time, um, I think it was one of the things that they heavily harped on. You know, one of the things that Martin Luther King was in Johnson ear about was the, the voting rights and how he had to do that, you know? But London B. Johnson didn't pick MLK to be on his cabinet. Why? Because he wasn't for the agendas that he was wanting to do. But he couldn't get rid of MLK because at the same time he was a prominent leader for the black community. So he was forced to listen to this black man and forced to do some of the things he wanted because at the end of the day, MLK had enough power even over his elder guards, he could sway his votes and agendas with his people. So London knew he had to do what MLK wanted if he wanted to get to the black people because at that point, MLK was the gatekeeper to the black people. So you see, he had to, he had to go through that gate. He I mean, he couldn't use the elder guard to get through the gate because MLK was standing there. And in my opinion, that's why the government went through mass assassination of our black leaders because they realized that if they didn't get these black leaders out the way, who was the gatekeepers to the black people that they're trying to access to, then they were not gonna be able to access the black people without first removing the barrier in the way. And so you see that, you see where MLK and them get wiped out and then they replace their tokenized elder guards back into their positions to start being those black gatekeepers. But they're not the true black gatekeepers at all. They're far from it. Like I said, they do things to harm and damage their communities in exchange for crumb payments. Yeah, and don't you think that's like the fascination, I feel like, Kind of with the generation that's like 50 to 60 years old right now that's mm -hmm. like fascination with being like having a seat at the table like right. i think that's where a lot of that does come from with they're right. like or they keep people in power that right. they know are not effectual because they're like well at least we have a seat at the table right so it's like i agree i think like people in the 60s black leaders in the 60s and 70s were like well, I'm not, I really don't care about that seat at the table. Right. I need you just to give, right. I see you just give me what I want right. and then I can go about my way. Right, right. So, yeah, I think that's become a problem too, actually. Oh, and it's a real problem. I think that's what, one of the things that I like about Tyler Perry's messaging that he did in some of his awards he recently received was that at some point you got to stop fighting for a seat at the table and go create your own table. Um, and to me, that is the misguidance of black people. Um, but again, I think you have to reference some forms of history here because, you know, let's just be honest. The reason why we're integrated at these tables is because MLK thought that was the answer at the time. Uh, but one of his last uh, speeches and really one of his last like little short articles he wrote was the burning house speech. Well, he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Integration did not solve none of our problems. All it did was make us closer to the enemies that we are really trying to get away from. And he was like, what I realize now we need political and economical power and representation. And so you see white fear in the government ranks shoot off again because they realize like, oh shit, he done figured out the key. Because what did MLK do after that? His next move was he went down to Memphis to help sanitation workers fight for rights. Well, the kicker about those sanitation workers was that they were predominantly white. So the government realized that if MLK gets poor white people and poor black people to unite under one thing that you are all 
poor <laughs> and it's the government that is taking from you and making you poor like this, then that ruins everything they got in play. So, yes, that's when MLK and them had to go. They was like, oh, no, 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 no. They're going to throw a whole glitch in the game because, like you just said, they didn't want to sit at their table. They were on, no, we're going to go build our own damn table, and we're going to have our table rule your table because we're going to start telling you what to do because we got the people power over here, and you got to beg the people to do what you want to do. It ain't the same type of game we're playing. And so that's where you see the chess move of the government, like, well, we'll just get rid of you. How about that? <laughs> so you kind of see that unfold. So, yeah, I, I do agree that the elder guards are the problem and the ones that are sitting at the table. And that's the worst part about it to me as well as being a black person at the table. I think you do more damage to sit at their table and then not come tell your people. Like I said, Charles Lomax, when you saw that park agenda coming down, you should have came screaming to the Morningside community, they getting ready to take your park. This is what you need to know about this project. Here's who's in charge of it. Here's who's doing this. So you can contact these people today and let them know, do not take our park. Instead, you have them sit there at the table, watch this whole agenda unfold, take place, actually go into effect, take place. They do the bare minimum of reaching out to the community to say anything about it, because no one in the community to this day did not have a clue about the situation of them uh, taking that park down there. And then, in the end, when it's all said and done, we find out people like Charles Lomax and that other black lady, Shirley something, were the black people sitting there watching it happen. How do you do that? I'll give the white people benefit of the doubt. It was never for us anyway. So your agenda <laughs> did not support us from the get-go. So I'll give you credit. You didn't never have us in mind. But for the black people sitting there, how did you sit there and watch them do that to your community, your people, and not say a word? That is the problem. That is definitely a part of the huge problem, huge factor of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me check, make sure I went through my questions. Yeah, I'm uh, sorry. No, I, I love it. Yeah. You gave me a lot to work with. Ah. Um... You know, I think that was it. I mean, you gave me, I remember the first time, first question, you kept going, and I was like, you know what? Yeah, this is great. Yeah, better, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is better than the questions I had. Um, no, I think that's it. Um, but is there any last things on racism, Knoxville, politics that you... <laughs> I mean, like I said before, when everybody was holding their breath watching the presidential election as a black act, frontline black activist, as a black organizer in the movement, um, not just in Knoxville, because we have went up to uh, Louisville, Kentucky, supporting Until Freedom. Uh, we definitely have reached out down to Stacey Amber and them down there in Atlanta just to see what we could do around there. Um, you know, I'm constantly reaching out across our southerner state. Anyway, I've been working more in the southern states because we know racism heavily came out of the south. It's across the country, but it's definitely a heavy birth seat out of the south here, too. Um, but, you know, when the rest of the world was holding his breath trying to figure out who president was, for me, it didn't matter. It was like our agendas are still the same. Because yeah. Joe Biden ain't said a black agenda yet. VP Harris, who's a black woman, there's an example, has not had a black agenda yet. You know what I'm saying? I have not seen either party, Democrat or Republican, come out with a full-scale black agenda, period. So for me, as I said before, I was never worried about who the president was because for me, it never changed my agenda. We are still going to storm Washington, D.C. We are still going to storm Nashville in the city county building. We are still going to storm these local, state, and federal offices because we need these changes done. And like you said, we're not asking you. We are telling you this has to happen. And we are starting to charge and put more pressure on these political candidates. I said the day of the easy politician candidacy is dead. You will earn every vote from here on out. Because if you don't have an agenda for our needs and our communities, then you're not getting our vote. You don't get to keep sliding through, talking about, oh, yeah, I'm going to give y'all some new buses over here. And, uh, 
you're gonna throw a little park over there for your kids and then drive off in the sun. Nah, <laughs> nah, that ain't gonna keep happening. East Knoxville don't look like West Knoxville. What yeah. are you gonna do to make it look like that? Oh, you ain't got no plans on infrastructure and development? Guess what, you don't get no vote. So for me, as like I said, as the actors on the front line, nothing has changed. The movement continues forward. Until we get what we need as black people in this country and in this globe, for me, the fight continues day in and day out. Until we get political representation that represents our economics and our policies, our fight will continue. Until our men and women and our children can go outside and participate in driving while black and have a traffic stop that only leads to a ticket and not a loss of their life, we are still in this fight. And so for me, the, the answers and the questions and everything remains the same. Are you black? Okay, then it's time to get on board with this movement. Put your differences to the side because they are irrelevant because we are all been oppressed regardless of how rich or poor you are. Look at the NFL. Colin Kaepernick could not even kneel on the field when they were killing black men out here because he did not support police brutality. And we watched a slave-like system take place where white billionaires had more money than Colin Kaepernick. Again, they're cutting his checks. And they said, okay, well, if you're going to keep kneeling on our fields, you ain't going to play in our games no more. And just like that, we watched him get booted out. That was the most direct form of racism and discrimination we have ever seen in our country. And as you see, those slave owners, those, I'm sorry, I said see, slave owners, <laughs> that's how they came out. They came out like slave owners. But those white owners have yet to face a discrimination lawsuit like they deserve from the entire NFL. I'm shocked at the black players in the NFL. How do y'all not walk out the door at this point? You watch when your own people get persecuted because he's using his freedom of speech and his rights to make a statement about police brutality in our country. And instead of them taking awareness and say, yeah, we need to do something about this, they turn their back on him and try to put him out the league completely. So at that point, for the black people, you mean, you mean tell me that we are so easily sold and bought, which I guess is our slave mentality. That's that slave mindset. We're so easily bought and slow so that instead of every black player in the NFL walking out, which is like 90-something percent of the league, so that means there is no games if we leave the, if we leave the league, there's no more football at this point. Instead of them using that power of the people in that moment and walking out the door, Colin Kaepernick said, okay, well, if he can't play, then none of us are playing, and we all going to bounce. If y'all all would have left that league, you know how fast Colin Kaepernick would have been back in the NFL right now? <laughs> Boy, he would have been back in there so quick, it wouldn't even, we didn't even know he had even got put out. I'm like, in and out. Like, whoa, he's back in the league. But because we are slaves to the white man's dollar and their power and economics, instead of them using their people power in that moment and putting a total strike on the NFL, they stayed and then subjected themselves to the slave-like demands and mentality of their owners, which was there will be no kneeling, there will be no protesting, there will be none of these things, or no one will play in this league. That's what they did instead. Where y'all should have said, oh, there will be protesting, there will be awareness, <laughs> and there will be shouting of our voices, or there will be no NFL league. How about that? We didn't do that. And because, again, it's all instilled to the fear factor. They got us so scared to use our rights to the point that they can threaten your economics. And we see that all the time in black place, in black workplaces. Black people deal with micro and macroaggression in their workplaces day in and day out. And they deal with it because they're afraid of what? Losing their income. That's sad. When a job can make you be hostage to unfair and biased treatment day in and day out because you're afraid of how you're going to keep your lights on in your home at that point. Yeah. COVID even did this. We have watched teachers go back into classrooms with a life or death sentence, basically, is what they've been given. And we have watched people, instead of saying, nope, we're more of us and less of you. We're not <laughs> going to do that, and you're going to do what I say. And instead, they have bended to the power of the economical dollar. 
And that's why I said that we really have to look at a lot of things, not only just people party, we gotta look at dollars and poly economic factor, how they're using that as a weapon against us. Fuck your money, that's what we need to get on. <laughs> I can go make my own money, how about that? How about we have more entrepreneurship and people probably won't be so reluctant and dependent on these jobs because they'd be like, well, I can go start the same business myself and do better because I care about people and therefore I can advertise that while I could trash your business and tell the truth about you because I don't work for you. So I can tell the truth about you now, let the public know, like Cafe 4, you don't care about people. So why am I going to keep working here for you? We have to get back to the people power. It is a must, must, must. This movement only works as history has shown time and time again. I don't care how far you rewind back in the history. When the people stood up and said we had enough, that's when mass changes always came down from all ranks on the federal, state, local level of government. When the people said we had enough, that's when you saw mass changes happening because it's a few of them and many of us. 500 people on the federal level decide what is going to happen in this country. 100 people on Tennessee, well, I think it's across all states, 100 people in each state's legislature decides what's going to happen statewide. And then here in Knoxville, for example, you got 12, well, it's nine, and then you got 11 on the county side, then you got the two mayors. You got like roughly about 30 people deciding what's gonna happen here. In all of those locations, there's more people on this side than is on that side. Yeah. So it's literally just a matter of the people power standing up and saying, we are sick and tired of being sick and tired. So that's all I got for you guys. Uh, thank you to the class, to the professor. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Constance Every. I'm the founder of Black Coffee Justice, a 501c4 social justice organization. You can find us on Facebook at Black Coffee Justice. You can follow us on uh, Twitter at Black Coffee Just. And our website is blackcoffeejustice.com. Um, and as I said before, the movement is alive and well. And I will be here until the very end, giving every last breath and all the blood in my veins until black lives really matter.